0: And another thing about hip hop is that if it stays still for too long, it gets copied by by people who don't have the best interests of the people making it in mind, you know? And so it has to move at a pace that is uh, almost uncatchable, even though America catches it every time.
1: This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them, songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Check the This episode's guest is poet, essayist, and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib. Abdurraqib has had his work published in the New York Times, Pitchfork, The New Yorker, and Pan America. He's published three books: a collection of full-length poetry entitled The Crown Ain't Worth Much, a collection of essays They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, and Go Ahead in the Rain, a biography of seminal hip-hop group a tribe called Quest. A thinker of ever-growing influence In indie literature and music Abdurraqib's sharp wit And sly sense of humor Have made him a respected voice In cultural conversations Especially on social media The first song Abdurraqib chose As being essential to him Was Atlantic City By Bruce Springsteen
2: Well they blew up a chicken man In Philly last night Now they blew up his house too Down on the Boardwalker getting ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble bussing in from out of state, and the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a out.
0: Yeah, so I'm really excited about this, um first and foremost, because I think um I don't always get a chance to talk at length about songs that make me curious and um, the songs that I keep knocking on the door of every every time I sit down to write or sit down to kind of emotionally pursue something. Um, and these two songs have, have played a big role in my last two years, perhaps. And the first song I chose is Atlantic City by Bruce Springsteen. Um, I'm a big Springsteen disciple. Um, I'm a really big Springsteen fan. I, I grew up around a lot of Springsteen mythology and Springsteen excitement um, and have begun to consider him and think about him as a literary figure um, as opposed to just a singer songwriter. I've begun to think of him as um, a myth maker and a mythology builder and someone who's interested in um, a very different brand of world making than I am. Uh, and So Atlantic City is the first song I
2: chose. Do you remember uh, when you first heard it?
0: Yeah, you know what's wild is I um, heard it independent of the album it's on. I think um, for a lot of people, you know, Springsteen um, in the 80s was defined in two different ways. Uh, I think Springsteen was maybe first defined as the um, kind of, you know, all-American born in the USA Springsteen. But before that, um, there was kind of what I imagine as the joint where I think the two albums, uh, The River and Nebraska, kind of flow into each other and create um, a Springsteen that it was very invested um, in um, more heartbreaking, slow turning narratives about distance and the failures of the, his imagined American dream, right? And so I felt like um, in, the, in the 70s, you got kind of Springsteen um, extolling the virtues of um, labor as freedom Uh, In the early 80s, I think you got a really interesting version of Springsteen who um, was perhaps ruminating on those checks, you know, the the cash from those checks, not all the way about looking right. Um, And then after that, you get the kind of very misconstrued, but very angry and disenchanted American Springsteen. Um, But I first heard Atlantic City because it was on um, an acoustic mixtape like a physical acoustic cassette mixtape that someone made me when I was in high school. Um, and it haunted me, you know, it's a haunting song narrative wise. Um, and I remember first thinking about how it seemed like a book. It felt like I was reading a, a, a text and not listening to music.
2: But so, you know, the, the song has a full narrative. And I mean, I, I you know, I know that that's not necessarily something that's alien to, to pop songwriting. Um, but it really does, and it's and it's it's a it's a it's subtle. I mean, you know, you 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 get it, but it's not overt. It's not hitting you over the head. What's happening? And um, you know, of course, he's uh, he got to be a master of that. Uh, you know, by by the time he got to that record.
0: Well, what's also valuable about this particular record for me is that um, you, as a listener, um, the stakes are introduced very early. You know, within the first few lines, it feels like you are not. Uh, you're not necessarily building towards uh, towards something. You feel as though, or at least I, as a listener, feel like I am dropped into chaos. Um, you know, the Blue of Chicken Man in Philly last night blew up his house too. There's a fight on the boardwalk. So before we even get to the central characters of the Atlantic City narrative, we are immersed in the kind of um, Mad Max-like hellscape that they are walking into. And I think because the stakes are so defined, so well defined so early uh, it creates um, a space of, of empathy. And so you're already um, getting a type of empathy for these characters that you don't really have access to beyond understanding um, what, what their world is. And I think that's the, that's
2: really the best part. Uh, You've written a lot about um, sort of music in high school, and, and this is something that's actually come up a lot um, with some of our other guests is that, that time in your life where something has maybe an outsized impact because it hits you at the right moment or it hits you when you're sort of young and impressionable and pliable. Um, and it sounds like that did this for you, but I guess I'm curious, you mentioned going back to it, um, you know, in recent times and, and going back to it sort of when you're, um, you know, you're working on writing or, you know, investigating things emotionally. What is it about that song that, that, that makes it, gives it that quality?
0: Well, because I think it's wrestling with um, very human inevitabilities that I think, um, you know, for me, early Springsteen, especially now when I revisit it, he feels so larger than life, right? He feels as though he's um, kind of this towering um, monument to a very particular corner of america and i think one thing honestly i'm, I'm drawn to springsteen because um, our americas are extremely different right the way um, that he views america and freedom and joy and escape are um adjacent to my own but different like decidedly different we're from a different place we're from a different era we are from um he is from what I'm sure many would consider a simpler time uh, for better or worse and all the things that come with that quote unquote, simpler time. Um, but I do think that Springsteen and I, um, and, and again, Bruce Springsteen is maybe one of the most important artists of my lifetime personally, because I feel like where our interests do intersect is when he begins to get um, very tactile around inevitabilities, right? Um, be it, when he uh you know he he's at his best for me when he's not hopeful he's at his best for me when he's uh somewhat distraught in in sad and ruminating on the fact that time is in some ways something that has a hold on all of us and so i love atlantic city because it's so relentless in the way it presents the inevitabilities right it um i'm a poet and uh, poets often talk about endings that um You know, the value of an ending that opens a new door versus the value of an ending that locks everyone in a room and forces them to reckon with the mess that the poem has made. And what I love about Atlantic City is that it's the latter, right? It's a song that locks you, the ending locks you in this room and forces you to kind of reckon with the mess that the rest of the song is laid out. Because at the end of the song, things aren't better than they were at the beginning of the song. Um, at the end of the song, there's kind of a resignation. Things aren't necessarily worse. And I think that's that's what it is too, for me, is that um, at the end of Atlantic City, things are not better, but they are also like not worse. So um, the real magic of the song is how it arrives from point A to like just a newer, different perspective on point A, right? The song begins with a fire and ends with a different type of fire. Um, and, and I think that is what really, really just does it for me
2: and I believe that you're totally right personally that Sad Bruce is the best Bruce
0: yeah like I think Tunnel of Love is a really good record you know that people don't always talk about in regards to to Springsteen Um, and you know I think Nebraska is just really heart wrenching and yeah I mean I think Sad Bruce is is maybe not as um, bombastic or bold uh, in some ways but I think he is um, really. I think when he, I think he is most interesting when he is coming to terms with these simple inevitabilities in life, which is why, you know, and I, as I love Bruce Springsteen, I. Do not wish for a world without him but because i understand how the world works in some ways i have already mourned the world without him um and i think what we're seeing with him now is what we're seeing with like what johnny cash did or what in some ways david bowie did where artists who are becoming aware of their own mortality get to write their own eulogies Uh, and i think the broadway show is in some ways his first step in that direction um you know i think there's something to be said about being largely alone on a stage um, playing stripped-down performances of your songs in a way where you can clearly articulate what you meant when you wrote them so that, you know, before you go, um, there's a narrative that you get to control. Um, and, you know, there, there's something kind of beautiful about Springsteen on a stage telling a million different stories at once.
2: Well, as the man said, everything dies, right? Right, that's a fact.
1: The second song Abdurraqib chose as being crucial to him was Wipe Me Down by Lil Boozy, featuring Fox and Webby. I pull up at the club, VIP, gas tank on even but all drinks on me. Wipe, Wipe me down. Fresh kicks, fresh white, tall teeth, fresh NFL hats, fresh bows with the grease. Wipe, Wipe me down. Wanna hit me with the heat, real recognize, real, real, don't speak. Wipe, Wipe me down. Chicken laden, I've been rolling by the
0: Wipe Me Down remix Webby, um, Lucy, and Fox um, and you know I, I wrote about Wipe Me Down extensively um, in my book They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us um, but I still you know I was recently out with some friends and a car um, and it was somewhere in the south and I forget where I, I really hate doing a thing where I talk about the south as if it's a um, amalgamation of one place no 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 I know where it was I was in Mississippi um, I was in uh, Oxford, Mississippi and I was walking And a car drove by and they were playing wipe me down and something happened where everyone on the corner stopped and like shouted along with the part of the song that was playing. And so I've been thinking a lot about how that song has a very specific effect on people. Um, and I haven't been able to get that out of my head.
2: I uh, went back to the piece that you um that you wrote about it, that was uh, collected in the book, um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the relationship between that song and, and Baton Rouge, and sort of the time that uh, that it came about.
0: Yeah, I mean that song came um, in the aftermath of, or it reached its most prominent peak um, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and Um, You know, of course, Hurricane Katrina affected New Orleans and parts of Mississippi most aggressively, but due to its effect on those cities, it also had an effect on surrounding cities. Like, of course, Houston is most notable, but somewhere in that narrative, I think Baton Rouge often gets forgotten And the impact that Hurricane Katrina had on Baton Rouge uh, was, of course, that um, a lot of New Orleans residents and Mississippi residents ended up transporting themselves to Baton Rouge, Louisiana where at the time um, Baton Rouge was um, had a really flourishing music scene but because the New Orleans music scene was perhaps most notable or most um, known for both No Limit Records and then Cash Money Records it was kind of hard um, for uh, Baton Rouge artists to break into the mainstream uh, as as they should have or, or as they deserve to. Um, but "Wipe Me Down" kind of hit this kind of perfect moment um, where you know Southern rap was um, or New Orleans rap in general was having um, a real honed in focus um, and because that song played well on the radio and in the club and in all these different ways, um, it kind of had a bit of an explosion. And it was, um, you know, it was three um, Baton Rouge rappers who who made it work, you know? And I think um, rarely, um, you know, do you get that kind of creative force behind one song in one community. And I remember, um, you know, if you had the original, so like I got the original copy of "Wipe Me Down." It was just on like a, I don't know if people remember those like CDs where it was just like silver with nothing on them because you could like record whatever you wanted on them. That's what the original version of "Wipe Me Down" looked like. It was like a CD single that was just one of those clear silver CD singles. And Trill Records had printed out some like just text on it, you know, um, and all it was was the "Wipe Me Down" clean version the dirty version and the instrumental. And so, it was just Fox, right? The original was just Fox. Mm. But then when the remix hit, it had a whole other life, right? There was something about um, Boosie's verse and Webby's verse and how that fleshed out the song. Um, And and I really adore what that song has to say about um, flyness and freshness and sacrifice and the uh, the very odd moment in a life where um, you might not have a lot, but you both want to share what you do have and pretend as though you have more. But I also want to say that I think the video, um, for Me Down is such a time capsule, you know, um, fashion shifts regularly, but I think a lot about how fashion and hip-hop circles shifts at, like, breakneck speed, um, and so, You know, to look back on the Wipe Me Down video and see the the giant t-shirts and the very baggy jeans and the really colorful low top sneakers, um, you know, it for me is such a beautiful bit of nostalgia. Um, Yeah, I have moments where I put my hand on my head and say, oh gosh, I can't believe I dressed like that. But honestly, um, to dress like that was a real moment, I think, in a culture because the fashion felt accessible, you know people could get white tees and people could get baggy jeans. Um, It felt like a really touchable moment for, for uh, people who, again, maybe didn't have a lot, but wanted to live as though they had more.
2: You bring up something that I've thought about for a long time is that, that the, the speed of the churn in, in hip hop culture where, um, you know, a zillion years ago I worked in a record store and we had a lot of customers coming in for, you know, I guess, mostly cassettes, uh, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the latest thing was. And that was the thing people would come in. It's like, what's new. And they didn't mean this month or this year, they meant that week. And it was, there was very much a focus. And you know, after a few weeks, those tapes didn't really sell that much. Right. And I was always struck by sort of that, you know, the importance of what's hot right now. And then when that's gone, I mean, maybe people still remember it, but it's not hot anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a move, right? And that's just kind of the, the direction of it all for better or worse. Also, though, I was just going to say that um, I, I do think that there is something to be said for the, the rapidly shifting, um, the rapidly shifting culture in hip hop specifically. And I do think part of that is because, um, you know, for all of the people who don't imagine hip hop as multifaceted, it's so deeply multifaceted. It's as multifaceted as the people making it. And so, There are a lot of ways where it makes sense that hip-hop refuses to be stagnant, it refuses to stay still for too long. And another thing about hip-hop is that if it stays still for too long, it gets copied by by people who don't have the best interests of the people making it in mind, you know? And so it has to move at a pace that is uh, almost uncatchable, even though America catches it every time.
1: The final song chosen by Abdurakib was Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody.
0: Um and I am I, I wrote a lot about this song in 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 a piece that's coming out in the book that will be out late next year. Um but I'm mostly fascinated not by um the song itself, but by I mean I'm I am fascinated by the song itself. Um but I'm also fascinated by the performance of it to open the Grammys that Whitney Houston um did in 1986, perhaps, um, or perhaps it was 87. Um, at the 1988 Grammys, Whitney Houston opened with um, a performance of I Want to Dance with Somebody. Uh, and she really struggled through the dance routine. You know, it was this really multi-layered performance where um, she came out for the first half to do the first half of the song. Um, and then during the bridge, she goes backstage while the instrumental portion of the song continues to play because since it opens the Grammys, they had to have room for the announcer to do the like, welcome to the Grammys, here are the million people performing. Um, and then she comes back out and sings the back half of the song. And I love the performance for how um, it is divided both um, sonically and through her comfort level. She is very uncomfortable in the first half of the performance. Whitney Houston was not a great dancer. Um, she is trying to like move her way through some awkward and uncomfortable dance moves but then when she comes out in the second half she has an outfit change she's a lot looser she kind of finds herself freer and i think the very concept of a song about wanting to dance with somebody um, and coming from a person who was not a very good dancer is fascinating but only fascinating when you realize that the song itself is not necessarily about the physical act of dance as much as it is the act of human connection through whatever lens that looks like. Right. Or the idea that I want to dance with somebody actually means I want to be seen by somebody who sees the whole me. Um, that is, um, the heart of the song. And I think that is what excites me most about the song. Um, you know, it's not my favorite Whitney Houston song, but I think it's the most fascinating Whitney
2: Houston song. Did you, uh, did you see that performance, uh, live, or is that something you came to later?
0: I definitely didn't see it live. I found it, I found it like on the internet
2: um, much, much later.
0: I was like four years old when she did that performance. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't see it live, but I'm a big Whitney Houston fan. And in my, you know, unraveling of all Whitney Houston news, um, I... Um, got very excited about watching all of her live performances that I could find. And that one is a bit buried, you know, it's not as accessible as the other ones. Um, So the video of it online uh, is not that great. It's um, kind of grainy um, because, you know, it was, um, and it might not even be online anymore. Um, But when I found it, I found it because I was trying to find videos of Whitney Houston dancing. For this project that I was working on, because you know she was kind of notoriously not a great dancer, um, and this elaborate Grammy performance that required a lot of dance and a lot of movement um, presented difficulty. And so it's hardly online because I think a lot of people have kind of scrubbed it or pushed it offline because it's not a it's not a great performance for someone who's watching it with the naked eye. But if you're watching for what's happening underneath the movements of the performance, it's one of the greatest Grammy performances of all time.
2: It's interesting how I, it seems, in a way, the way you're talking about it at least seems to line up a little bit with some of the narrative that's emerged about her since her passing. Um, in that she was, you know, especially early in her career, was sort of, you know, channeled into doing things that were maybe not necessarily the thing that she wanted to do or the thing that she felt the most, right? But that, you know, was going to be most successful. And then sort of that tension between who she was and what she wanted to be versus how sh- people wanted to present her, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And so I think, um, you know, what excites me about that ending of that brand new performance is that, and I can't, I'm not an authority, right. Um, but it appears as though, um, the viewer is getting the full Whitney Houston. We're getting the Whitney Houston beneath all the other manufactured Whitney Houston's of that time. Um, and that, for me, is really freeing and really beautiful and um, brings me great joy.
2: Was this something you would have uh, heard from your parents or, or where would you first have come across her music?
0: Oh, I came across Winnie Houston from my mother. My mother would sing Winnie Houston songs. Um, Winnie Houston was the first pop star I think I knew was a pop star even before I knew what a pop star was because um, you know, I heard people I love singing her songs. And so I would imagine that. If someone I love would sing the songs of someone else, that person must be the, the greatest person alive.
1: This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org/podcastcentral. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.